Now, today's psalm, as you just heard it read by Joanne, is considerably less wordy than last week's psalm, Psalm 119. This psalm is just a mere 17 verses. But don't underestimate the treasure that is to be found in these verses. I have thoroughly enjoyed studying this psalm this week, and I am very keen to share with you what God has been teaching to me through this study. So I want you to keep the text in front of you, because it's what the text is saying is that that's what matters the most. Before going further, I want to read, I'm going to read a little insert that's at the top of the psalm in the Bible. Joanne didn't read that, but it is important that you be familiar with that. It's almost like a sort of preface type remark. It says, to the choir master, according to do not destroy, a miktam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Okay, so just pay attention to those words and remember that and keep your Bibles in front of you. Now, if you spend time with children, you'll know that there's one phrase that comes out of their mouth quite often. Can you help me? Or in the case of my niece, Annabelle, help me, Uncle Raj. Help me put on my shoes. Help me climb on top of a rock. Hold me. And sometimes when she's naughty, help me take that toy from my brother Lawson. Kids are very quick to ask for help. Ansley, Alistair, and Julia's daughter asked me to help her drive a few weeks ago. Now, in contrast to this habit of youngsters, it seems that a lot of us, as we go on about living our life, we lose the ability to ask for help. Those words don't roll off our tongue as easily as they once did. But we still need help. We still need help. Why? Because our lives are not together. We lack. We're needy. According to the Bible, despite the fact that we were made for glory and dignity, our existence has been tainted by the devastating effects of sinfulness and brokenness in creation. That's why we have fractured lives. That's why we're prone to replace God's way with our own way. The overarching result of that state of affairs is not only that we're subject to the guilt of sin, that's what the Bible teaches us, but also, and especially important for today, we're subject to the corruption of sinfulness in our lives. We're not the way we're supposed to be. Things aren't the way that God intended them to be. And so we struggle emotionally, relationally, physically, mentally. We need help. We need rescue. We need to be delivered. Yet deliverance and help and aid are things that we grown-ups can so easily cease to ask for. Let me put a caveat on that. We do seek help from time to time, but not with the frequency and desperation of children or of the psalmist or of King David right here in Psalm 59. This doesn't just apply to asking each other for help, but also to asking God for help and deliverance. See, sometimes we think we have to fix things and sort things out before we can go to God. We've got to be together spiritually and morally before we can approach God and connect with Him. I cannot overemphasize the falsity of that type of outlook. Yet it's an outlook, I think, which is pretty familiar to many of us, and myself included. Sometimes we think we have to have it all together to draw close to God. But here's what we need to see today. We need to see that the pleading and the supplication that runs right all the way through Psalm 59, it stands in diametric opposition to that type of outlook. The cry for help and deliverance emerges 58 times out of 150 psalms. 
58 times out of 150. That's one out of every three psalms is about deliverance. I want you to think of that as one out of every three sentences that, that a person speaks is about help and deliverance. That's the frequency with which we should approach God for help, for deliverance. See, the psalms envision a church, a church that's a community that is constantly praying for deliverance from God. That's the type of community they envision. How do we become that type of community? That's the chief question today. How do we become that type of community? And I want to suggest to you that in becoming a community that prays constantly for deliverance and for help, we need to take three things into account. Number one, we've got to acknowledge our fractured existence. Number two, we've got to cry out to God our Redeemer. And number three, we've got to embrace the reality of our present existence. We've got to acknowledge, we've got to cry out, and we've got to embrace. If you're making an outline, you can use those three words. Acknowledging our fractured existence. Right? Let me put it concisely. We're a mess, and we can't do anything about it. You have got to see this. You can see it right here in the first three verses of this psalm. Read with me. Deliver me from enemies, God. Protect me from things that rise up against me. Deliver me from the work of evil. Save me from bloodthirsty people. They lie in wait for my life. For no transgression or sin of mine, they seek to harm me. These verses describe a very familiar aspect of our existence, one that's riddled with problems and troubles, filled with forces and people that would oppose us and assault us. Sometimes these forces are within ourselves, undermining our contentment, our well-being, our joy. We need to be frank about this, just like the psalm is. Now, to fully appreciate this state of affairs, which touches everybody's life in this room and in the world, we need to see that this psalm operates at three different levels. First, there's the historical situation of the psalm. As we just heard at the top of the psalm, that section I read to you, this is a psalm and a prayer that comes from King David. Except at the time when David wrote this, he wasn't the king yet. He had been tapped to become king. He'd been anointed, but someone else, a man called Saul, still sitting on the throne. And so, as you can imagine, Saul wasn't that keen about being replaced by David. He didn't like God's appointment of King David. Saul wanted to make his own dynasty. So it's no shock, therefore, that Saul attempts to assassinate David. And at the time of Psalm 59, when this psalm, when this prayer was written, it seems that Saul's troops had been deployed and they had surrounded David's homestead. And so David's house had turned from a place of refuge into a death trap. That's why he cries out to God for deliverance. And boy, does he cry out. The bulk of this psalm, verses 6 through 16, lots of crying out to God for deliverance. That's the historical situation of this psalm. But you and I aren't supposed to take up this psalm because of Saul's troops. They're not out there in the lobby waiting to get us after the sermon. We take up this psalm because we all have occasions like this in our lives. Right, this is the second level of the psalm's meaning. I call this the psalm's meaning in the context of the community's experience. We all feel betrayed. We all feel alone at times. We all languish. We all feel imperiled. We all, at some time or another, are brought face to face with our fractured existence. 
And so we take up this psalm out of recognition of that fact. But there's a third level that you need to see. That's the level of the experience of Lord Jesus. See, in this psalm, and right here, we get a little lesson on what it means to read the Bible as a Christian. And that's a skill that you all need to learn. As your pastor and with Alistair, that's something we need to be teaching you constantly. Something we need to be learning constantly. Reading the Bible as a Christian. You see, you've got to understand that in the Bible, any given text tells us not only about the human authors or about our experience as God people, but also about Jesus. I've been thinking about this question and this skill that we need to develop in conversation with Dietrich Bonhoeffer recently. I want you to listen to what he says this morning. The Psalms impregnated the life of early Christianity. But more important than all of that is the fact that Jesus died on the cross with the words of the Psalms on his lips. See, in the context of the big story of the Bible, we don't approach the Psalms just as the words of King David or just as the words of our experience as God's people, but we also approach them as words that Jesus Christ himself prays, Jesus Christ himself embodies. And according to Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, the Psalms announce his death and his resurrection and the preaching of his gospel. And so every Old and New Testament text should somehow lead us to the Lord Jesus. We can see that happening right here in the words of Psalm 59. These words embody the experience of Jesus Christ, an existence that was marked by suffering on behalf of our fractured lives. That's what gave him the occasion to cry out for God, deliver me from those who work evil. Save me. And Jesus did say that, didn't he? And look at verse 3. Jesus was the one who endured the assault, the cross, for no transgression or sin of his own. That was Jesus Christ. That's who that is. And so we see that this psalm, it's not in this experience of fracturedness. It's not just our experience, but it's also the experience of God himself. God in Jesus Christ, who knows the truth and the pain of our fractured existence. And he's deeply familiar with it. Now these three layers of meaning, the historical, the experience of the community, and the experience of Lord Jesus, they conspire to remind us that we really live a fractured existence. The Bible says it. We all know it from our experience. And God himself is familiar with it. Friends, this insight is so crucial. It's crucial because we tend to live in denial. Not just individually, but also at a cultural level. We've been living in denial, as some of the historians will point out, since a series of 17th and 18th century shifts of intellectual and cultural ideas known as the Enlightenment. Now, you might not even be familiar with this historical episode called the Enlightenment, but you're products of it, whether you know it or not. That's why we're always trying to persuade ourselves that we can overcome our fractured existence and reach wholeness all by ourselves. We like to, to try to persuade ourselves of that. That's why we think if we can just find the right people to do the right work, then we can arrive. We can build a utopia, a perfect society. You ever run into that idea before? It happens all the time. But it doesn't just happen at a cultural level. It also happens at an individual level, at a personal level. That's why we think if we could just get the right degrees, the right body, 
the right friends, the right job, the right house, the right husband or wife, or a better husband or wife, then our broken little worlds would be healed. We could just get those things. Now here's the thing. In spite of this, the appeal of this ancient delusion and this perennial vanity, that is not the nature of your life or my life, and it never will be. Listen to me now. There is no life or salvation. There is no wholeness or ultimate repose to be found within ourselves. And to think that there is, is to live a life of idolatry. Our existence is fractured in all sorts of ways, and it cannot be fixed by us. And you know what? Until you understand this, you will never pray for help and deliverance like King David right here in Psalm 59. But when you do acknowledge that, then you will begin to cry out to God, our Redeemer. It's the second point. In other words, to come to terms with our fractured existence is to look away from ourselves and towards God Almighty and to embrace Him as the true source of deliverance and help. Look with me now at a few more verses. Verse 1, deliver me from my enemies, God, protect me. Verse 4, and I'm going to use the NRSV translation here. I think it's better. Rouse yourself, Lord. Come to my help. And of course, verse 9 and 10, I watch for you. For you, God, are my fortress. In your steadfast love, you will meet me. In this psalm, David's not looking to his own resources and strength. He's not looking to his own skill and savvy. He's looking to God. And to some degree, at least in historical context, he does find a bit of deliverance. See, David does not get killed in the midst of this incident. He makes it out, and he does go on to become Israel's king. David looks to God to be his help, and that's the best thing that we can do. Now, here's what you must see. This psalm calls us to look to God in the midst of every situation in which we need redemption. Every situation. It's not just about David and the storms of his life. It's about us too. I want you to consider your life now. I want you to scan through all the areas of your life where redemption is needed. All the fractured places in your life right now. I want you to think about those things. What are those places? Give them a scan. Now here's what God's telling us. There... And there, and there, and there. God is your redemption there. And in that situation too, God is your redemption. And there too, God is your fortress. That's what this psalm is telling us. Whether you're struggling against enemies within yourself, within your own heart, or your own body, or you're struggling with things outside of yourself, the call of the church is to look to God for help and deliverance. That's our call. God is our deliverance in the midst of this fractured existence that we have. All of our internal or external travails. Now before moving on from this point, I want you to see that in this sense too, Psalm 59 is a reference to Jesus Christ. When Jesus was tempted, he didn't look to himself but to God. That's what you're going to read in all the Gospels of the New Testament. Jesus is the one who really knows what it means to look to God. He's the one that shows us what it means to cry out for deliverance to God, to wait for God's help. But you know what? On the other hand, Jesus is also the one who enters into our fractured existence to bring us redemption. 
He is our deliverance and our help. He is the cry for redemption, and he is the answer to the cry for redemption. He is the one that shows us not only what it means to turn to God, but also the one who causes God to turn towards us. That's who Jesus Christ is. And in Jesus Christ, we come to know God as an immeasurably loving Father. An immeasurably loving Father. One who loves you more than anyone else in this universe ever has or ever will. That's a good person to ask for help from. Good person. This insight is vital. Why? Because to know that God has entered our suffering and our pain through Jesus Christ helps you to say, helps me to say with great confidence, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Those are the words of Psalm 23. And so this psalm is a witness to Jesus Christ, our only Savior. I want to give you a bit of application here. Please hear this if you can. This psalm helps us not just to escape the denial of our fractured existence, but it also helps us to avoid the cynicism that can result from it. Cynicism, that's the other great temptation of our age. Now let me explain. When you come to recognize how fractured the world is, how deep it goes and how much it spoils your life and the life of people you love and other people you don't even know, when you realize that this world is such a mess and that things aren't going to get better super quick, when you realize that, you can become cynical. You can fall into a place of jaded despair. You can slide into a sour and bitter life. But Psalm 59 teaches us Please remember this, that cynicism is a lie that masks itself as an insight. Cynicism is a lie that masks itself as an insight. See, in spite of all the temptations and tragic circumstances that crouch at our door, things that can tempt us to cynicism, we don't have to face the darkness on our own. God is real, and God does save his people. And he will deliver those who cry out to him. God is not a distant and impersonal force. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of Christianity. In fact, Jesus Christ spent his entire life to dispel any such idea about God. That's why the personal name for God, Yahweh, some of you might know that word. It's the personal name for God in the Old Testament. It's used in this psalm several times. In verse 3, in verse 5, and verse 8. And that is not a name for God that is thrown around lightly. That name signifies God's covenant faithfulness to us. It's a name that says, God knows me, I know God, and that God is with me and for me. That's what Yahweh means. It means God will never leave or forsake me. Let me say that again because some of you need to hear that today, I think. God will never leave or forsake you. God will never leave or forsake you. Dearly beloved, if I have one prayer today, is that 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 truth would get into your heart of hearts. That's my prayer for you today. And so this psalm, Psalm 59, it teaches us not only that we need deliverance, but also that we have a deliverer. Now we come down to my final point. Embracing present reality present existence. 
Or to put it another way, living between people who need deliverance and people who are being delivered by God. Please listen, this is very important. Even when you believe God is your helper, even when you know God is your deliverer, even when you really enter into the outlook of Psalm 59, you're still going to get sick. You're still going to lose children. You're still going to suffer mishap and misfortune. You're still going to endure failure and injustice, just like David. You're going to cry out for help and find it doesn't necessarily come when you want it to come and in the way you want it to happen. That's how we experience this world. And so from one angle, we can say that we are people who are still awaiting redemption. Go read Romans 8 if you need to be reminded of that. We've got to come to terms with the fact that we live between present fragmentation and the total redemption of creation. That's how we experience the world. It's a mix of groaning, but also hope. Now, this psalm helps us because it is filled with language from that place. This psalm is filled with language from that place. I want you to consider David's life with me. At the time of this psalm, David hadn't yet overcome and mastered all of his troubles. In fact, if you read more about King David's life, you'll see that it was a mess and that it got worse after this psalm. It got worse. David's words here and in the other psalms, they're crying out from that intermediate space, this life in between. It's a place where on the one hand we, we refuse to be resigned to the brokenness of the world, but on the other hand, we're not yet happily resting in God's full redemption. That's the place where we live right now. That's our present existence. It's a pilgrim space. It's a place where these two realities meet. And prayer is the language of that place. Now, as we ponder the character of this intermediate space, this life in between, think about how we embrace this present reality. I want to say three things to you about it. Number one, Living life in this place means you've got to live a life of memory. A life of memory. Look with me at verse 16. I will sing of your might. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love. For you have been a fortress to me. You have been a refuge in a day of trouble. These are words about what God has done. In the midst of his trials, David is cultivating memory here. He remembers God's past faithfulness the track record of God's faithfulness and preservation. There's always a track record in our lives, but sometimes we can be very blind to them. But there's always one. Now here's the gist. Our life in between must not be focused exclusively on our present trials. It must also focus on God's past faithfulness to God's track record as your keeper, as my keeper. We have to tell ourselves, we have to remind ourselves about what God has done. We've got to preach to ourselves the story of redemption. And we've got to rejoice in the specific signs of it in our lives. Memory is one of the greatest tools at your disposal. That's why the Bible gives us a story. That's why we come here to Robson Square every Sunday to tell these stories over and over and over again so that we can remember God's faithfulness. Number two. It's a life of habits. So it's a life of memory, but it's also a life of habits or practices. Look with me now at verse 16 and 17. 
but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. There's a lot of singing and praising in this psalm. It's the language of worship. The Hebrew terms that are used right here in these sentences are words that are used when people get together to acknowledge and celebrate and reverence God. That's the language that's used here. David is talking about getting together with God's people to praise God. That's the equivalent of going to church, our weekly singing, our weekly hearing God's word. What's all this about? It's a reference to cultivating habits and rhythms that bear witness to God's redemptive work in our lives and in the world. Doing it in a community, together, frequently. Now, brothers and sisters, this is something we do even when we're not brimming with feelings of gratitude and celebration about God and His work in our lives. I want you to notice that in these verses, David is talking about praising God in a moment when he's probably not yet feeling God's redemption. Gratitude is not just a feeling. It's also a discipline. Life in between is not just about how you feel. Right? If you think that, then you fall into the idolatry of authenticity that is rampant in our culture. What you do also matters immensely. Your daily habits, prayer, spending time in God's word, going to the community group, taking the sacraments. We have to learn to bear witness to the reality, to a reality that we don't always feel, but that we know is true. Habits. We need our lives to be filled with habits like that so that we can acknowledge God's redemption even when it's not sending a shiver up our spine or putting a skip in our step. There's going to be a lot of days like that in this life, in this present existence. And number three, it's a life of anticipation. Anticipation. When we cry out for deliverance, we do so knowing that when all is said and done, God will redeem us. God will help us. God will deliver us. That's why verse 16 and 17 are filled with a tone of confident hope. God will act. David is planning in advance to praise God in this psalm. That's how sure he is. That's how sure we need to be. Anticipation. That's got to permeate our existence as God's people. When we're on the run, when things are going bad, we cling to God's promise that in the end he wins and that those who are with him will be delivered. This we believe. There will come that day when sin and death will be destroyed and when God will prevail. That's what we believe. Now this means, of course, that present life, life right now today, is going to be filled with restive yearning. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, not with malaise, but with assertive hope. Assertive hope. And you know what? That's not just our anticipation. That is also the anticipation of Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know? Because right now, He is interceding for us. Right now, He is waiting for us. Right now, His redemptive purposes are being worked out in the world. That's happening right now. That's not just my wishful thinking. You'll read that in Romans 8 and Hebrews chapter 7. Can I get an amen? A little better than last week. That's happening right now. That's not just our anticipation. That's the anticipation of Jesus Christ. 
our fellow pilgrims, as these three traits shape our lives, here's what we're going to discover. We're going to be spared from the temptation to false closure. Our lives here and now, and I know that many of you know this deeply, can be incredibly painful. Our questions don't all get answered. Our emotional lives and our relational rips don't all get put back together, and our bodies bewilder us. I know people in this church know that. Right now, you might be feeling it right now. In moments like that, when the agony presses heavy on us, we can be tempted and compelled to false closure. That can happen in at least a couple of ways. The first way it can happen is, is our temptation to resolve everything into sin and darkness. We stop talking about redemption. We stop longing for it. We cease to yearn for God's kingdom to come. And all we see is darkness. We embrace the pain of our experience, but that's it. That's one form of false closure, and it can harden with age, and it leaves you better. You need to resist that. You need to resist it. On the other hand, we can slide into what I call a blithe and cheap form of spiritual glee. This is where we try to resolve the pangs of our experience into some super spiritual optimism. Everything's just great all the time. This is the type of person that goes and stands at the edge of a genocide, and they say, isn't God so good? There's some note of redemption in there, but you know what? They're denying another part of present experience and reality. We don't do that. That's not biblical spirituality. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that's contemptible. Now, in revolt against those two temptations to false closure, we got to reckon both with the present nature of our experience, our lives, but also with God's promises and God's power to bring good out of evil ultimately. That's where we live. That's the middle space. And so we meet here at Robson Square every week, and we give thanks, but we also weep and cry, and we plead to God for deliverance and help. And through it all, we liturgically enact God's redemptive work in the world. Can you help me? I want you to let that question register today. God intends us to be a people who know how to ask for deliverance. Can you do that? Will you do that? Pray with me.